Hello, my name is Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's episode was about lock-in and the risks organizations take when they get locked into a vendor. Uh, and we talked a lot about um, the perennial lock-in candidate, which is Oracle, but uh, we had discussed the Okta breach and migrating away from Okta and how difficult that was as part of the warm-up. Uh, period, which don't don't make it into the podcast sessions. The overall discussion boiled back down into something very simple, which is being locked in with a vendor is a risk. And that took us into insurance. And can we insure it or will the insurance policies ultimately drive people to reduce lock-in exposure? because of the way insurance markets and insurance policies work. So a fascinating discussion about not just if you were locked in, of course you are, but what would drive you to fix your lock-in problems, if they're problems at all. So really good discussion, um, very business-focused, and I know you will enjoy it. I want to roll back to the topic of the day. Uh, which is uh, lock-in, and and this we didn't we didn't put a lot of um, details in except some some news stories. Um, so for these, this is um, was the the topic itself was original was inspired by Chris Short and his trying to move off Spotify and his experience of doing that. Um, and then somebody added, thank you, a link with the Google requiring all G Suite legacy users to start, I'm just reading the URL, to start paying for workspaces this year. Um, and I, I would open the conversation just with the note that I, I think we, we generally say lock-in as a negative phrase, but I think that every choice has a degree of lock-in. So what... What I would, and I know this group is is balanced in that, um, but it's worth I think us having you know the acknowledgement that any decision you make is a degree of lock in. There's times when vendors um, accentuate that. And there's times when they abuse that. Um, and so I, I think the first thing we need to do is sort of figure out our our sentiment on it as bad, good, indifferent, um, and then go from go from like is. Is this is there action out of this or future discussion? Anybody want to break in? Well, I'm. Uh, I have a strong opinion in this space, as you know. Uh, I I believe that lock-in overall is bad for our ecosystems because it tends to to concentrate um, power in the hands of a few large tech players, uh, and that hampers innovation that causes all kinds of bad stuff. So uh, I think uh, as a product manager working for a company, put that hat on like, yeah, lock-in is great. The more I can lock my customers in the, the less customer churn I have. And that's a metric I get paid on. So yeah, I, I understand where they're coming from, but from a society economic industry level, Overall, it's a bad thing. I, I, I agree with that. Uh, there's also the other side of the coin is that trying to be vendor agnostic is expensive. It's a huge effort. 
Like it's, it's not only money, but time as well. Yep. Um, so actually I'm going to, I'm, I mean that, you know, trying to be vendor agnostic um, is what pays my paycheck on, uh, on every two weeks. Um, that's, I mean, that's what I do, right. Is we build, we build systems that, you know, that we can pivot on vendors quickly. Um, but I'm, I'm actually going to argue in favor of vendor lock-in, which, you know, I know goes against, goes against my own personal views, but I think there is some value there. Um, the argument is that it's, it's cheaper, it's faster, and it's less risky. Um, because I only have one vendor. I only have one place to go and they've already pre-integrated and tested things for me. Yep. Makes sense to me. Enterprises really, uh, prefer that because they don't have a lot of cash to throw around the way large companies do that can put a team to de develop new code on. Well, it depends on what you're talking about, right? I mean, yeah, go there's, ahead, um, it can be, uh, it can be any, almost any part of your system, like your auth. I mean, are you locked in by picking glue or Okta or any of the many auth providers? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, how easy is it going to be to disentangle um, having your auth um, spread out over your entire infrastructure? Um, pretty darn difficult. It's going to be, um, and there's lots of decisions like that. If you uh, pick a, a, a front end fr framework, you're going to be locked into that. Um, you oh. could switch off of it, but it's a difficult decision. Just the discussion initially was infrastructure because that you know physical infrastructure uh, seemed immutable and very difficult to move off of, and that's somewhat been uh, made possible with building out um, Kubernetes and some of the other distributed systems. Um, but now everyone's building, everyone's a, a DevOps to a certain extent. All the, or at least everyone's trying to, uh, a lot of the vendors are trying to force a lot of the customers into being um, more some dev uh, as well as ops. And it's, uh, it's exposed the complication of having a complex system that you have, every customer has to manage. Um, whereas in the past, you hardly did. You just relied on VMware or whoever you know, to do a lot of this stuff. So anyway, Tyler, Tyler's bringing up Oracle, which I think is the, the thing that immediately came to mind when we talk about um, enterprise, Don's laughing, enterprise and lock -in. enterprises <laughs> liking lock-in, right? I mean, that's, you know, and I, I would say the same thing with Cisco switches or right, there's, there's all these examples, especially from last a decade ago, where people standardize, they would call it standardization, not lock-in on a preferred vendor. And um, then that vendor took advantage VMware too of the lock-in of, of the two, um, you know. So actually, here's here's the question: Was were those premium products before? <laughs> oh boy, here's here's an interesting cycle of questions because I would say the same thing is going on with um, Splunk. Is early early leaders get initial accounts? Um, you can argue that they jack up the prices or don't, 
in some case, right, they probably do. Let's let's just accept that and and not argue that. And then that creates a market where people are like, I can take revenue from big, established, entrenched vendor, um, and go after that that margin. Is is are are they you know are are they jacking up the prices? Is it too high for the benefit? And then is this just a market phenomena of of chasing the incumbent vendor and calling it lock in? No, I think it's a function. I think it's a function of the venture capital investment strategy. Let's look at Okta, right? They've got an $80 billion market capitalization on 300 million in annual revenue. And, you know, they're getting, you know, $10 billion or or huge valuations from like Salesforce Ventures and all these other folks. If you look at, you imagine what the, the, the cap table looks like for these investors putting in half a billion dollars to a company like Okta, they've got to be expecting a 20x return on invested capital. And to get to that point, they have to lock in every customer. Well, subscriptions, right? I mean, that's that's the mother's milk right there. I mean, it's, if you don't have increasing, if you don't have momentum on subscriptions, you're, you're broken, essentially as a company, especially a yeah. startup. Well, I, I have a customer that has seen their Octa bill almost triple in the last 18 months. Wow. And they would love to get rid of Octa and they can't. Yeah. It is but very tricky once. Yeah, go ahead. So, well, I, they, I wanted to make uh, two points. Sorry to interrupt, but please. Tyler, I have a, a, a key question to what you just said. Why can't they get rid of Octa? Because they don't have the the money or the staff to go in and address the fact that all of their SaaS apps that their employees use are using Okta for SSO and MFA. So, yeah, they could, but they'd have to go app by app and change the OAuth provider and set up somebody else. So now you've got two different OAuth providers that IT has to support. So you've got this huge, you know, so IT support morass that you've got to deal with. And so it, it could they, cha- could they switch them out? Yeah. But what is the, what is the switching cost that they have? It's very high and it, it affects. Is trying to figure out what that is. Uh, they're going to keep probing until they hit that sweet spot. Evidently they're still, uh, uh, more price raises that your friend can absorb until they decide enough and enough is enough. And Octa will keep raising until they find that spot. Evidently, Which they haven't the found it yet. Playbook. <laughs> yeah, the I mean, it worked. That is the Oracle playbook. It's just been reinvented. But yeah. the the other point that I wanted to make, and I know Rich has his hand up too, is I think we also need to consider the notion that for better or worse, we're also at a tipping point of moving towards decentralized and distributed apps, right? Edge, uh, in a nutshell. And from that perspective, I think that the issue of lock, lock, vendor lock-in or even a broad capability in OAuth is going to start being revu- looked at in a slightly different way. Because do you really need to have that centralized or as your um, the rest of your infrastructure and some of your apps become edge native, 
that may no longer be an issue. This is a carryover from centralized systems. So I just wanted to throw that in the mix because as much of a quagmire as Okta may be, um, I'm starting to see a lot of movement of, of startups that are looking to take that notion of centralization away and try and look more from the distributed, and, yes, distributed, you know, the, distributed right. auth system, uh, distributed auth database. Yeah. I, yeah. I, well, yeah. I mean, it sounds messy. You're looking at blockchains <laughs> to do it. No, it's a blockchain. I mean, that's that's a distributed. That's actually a reasonable use of distributed ledger from that that perspective. Yeah. There's probably and I think this ways. overcomes part of the problem. I, I, one I, of the I, interesting. Go ahead. Uh, I, I I'm I'm actually jumping the the line like uh, Rich. Has okay, started. Rich, we're waiting. We got to get back to Rich. Oh, I'm making a note of mine. Go ahead. Uh, I guess one of the questions just as a fallback is what kind of mandates are we talking about here regarding you know are we talking about in creating a smooth transition from one service to another or one technology to another are we talking about interworking which would be more towards you know a continuity issue and uh kind of finally getting to interoperation. And then I guess what would be the infrastructure requirements for something even approaching any of these uh, with respect to infrastructure for identity and for secrets and secrets management? I guess I was trying to get a sense of are we talking about giving an enterprise some sort of well-defined, reasonably understood transition path? And it might be expensive, but at least it's understandable and there are some guarantees around it. Or are we talking about something closer to what the EU is, is trying to push forward with, um, with messaging recently and try to make all the, the messaging apps, not just ease, not just enforce an ease of transition, but literally interworking among them. And that just, you, you want to talk about lowest common denominator that would bring all of the messaging into just a, you know, a complete uproar. So I'm just asking a question of definition here. I'm going to actually add that whole topic. I want to keep talking about it, Rich, but I, I, I'm glad you're bringing it up and I'm going to add it to the backlog um, of topics. Cause I think that the whole idea of, of that EU messaging system interconnect is its own yes. topic for us I, I, but, I, without, but don't, I keep keep going i, I just want to well, make just, a note just to try to to stay with the with the question here are we talking about um you know what qualifies as you know a legitimate or an acceptable approach to lock-in or uh, counter to lock-in is it a well-defined and 
Is it a well-defined transition with some sense of um, kind of assurances of success in doing it? Or are we talking about interworking? Just specifically about, uh, you know, the Octa issue. Complexity of implementation sounds like, um, and from experience is, is a huge burden to, um, to, uh, yeah. but know, this is, uh, this is, not this is normal. Locked. This is normal. If this isn't an Octa specific thing, any no. operational system, and I'll speak yeah. to the operations things that we see, especially ones that are not well automated, um, are incredibly different, difficult to migrate through um, any type of change process. So, so in a lot of these security systems, even by design, you're hooking them up one by one to this, to the control, you know, the, the centralized authority. And there's no particularly straightforward way to make um, systemic changes against that or add or have a second option. Um, especially if, custom, if, if a company just decided that is my auth, my front door auth. Um, you're going to have to migrate like any operational process where you have to maintain the system while you're migrating between providers. Um, the complexity of doing that is potentially higher than the ROI that you would get. This is the whole lock-in question, right? The ROI of migrating away from a locked-in product um, is, it has to overcome that. You have to, Take into the complexity of actually moving and migrating and dealing with being in both places. Okay. okay. So, what what are your? I mean, in at the highest level, Rob, what would then be uh, mm. kind of the high level strategy? Do you make it? Do you make them interoperable to begin with, and demand that such that if I have to move from one to another, at least there is a you know, at least a partial solution to the fact that I can be operating on or with an alternative service and do so while things are still, you know, while data and compute is still in flight. I think we should uh, do it just like we do it with cybersecurity, right? It's all about risk identification and mitigation. Is it is that we don't necessarily need to build things interoperable if we've done the analysis to determine that if that vendor goes down or if they get acquired and deprecate the product line or whatever the other scenarios are that are that that create adverse uh, uh, adverse results via lock-in, if you can identify those risks up front when you're considering an architectural change and then quantify those risks from a lock-in perspective, then you can make the decision over how much upfront work you want to put into mitigating the lock-in risk, just like when you do a security review uh, for a potential new product or but project. These are, these are incredibly difficult architectural choices to make. So, so right, thinking this through, and to, Rich, I... I, I see where I, maybe I see where you're going. I, there's a, there's an element to be able to say it would be really nice if Okta or I'm using Okta as an example, you could use Oracle just as well. could be a proxy to my new solution. 
And so while I'm migrating, ideally while I'm migrating off of Okta, Okta will forward, stop, stop doing those requests and forward to another OAuth provider or an, another external provider so that I can do that migration. So there, in that case, the platform you're migrating away from participates in the exit, yep. which, which would be wonderful. I, that to me is, is what the EU is sort of asking happen here or it's uh, no enabling. The, the EU is asking for I mean, with respect to messaging. No, they're I, they were asking for something more. I, I know. I, I agree. Sorry. I agree with you. It's it does allow you to split. This is like splitting your networks. Yes. There's a different there's a different thing here that Tyler was talking about to me, which is an architectural driver, which says when I build an abstraction point I don't just build it as an abstraction point. I build it as a multi-source point, um, which actually we should do anyway, because there's a rotation or a deprecation factor in this. And so architecturally, a lot of times we have abstractions, but the abstractions are only allowed to point to one thing at a time um, instead of being able to say, okay, I want to make this abstraction smart enough to say I could have a preferred source and a backup source um, I'll give you a very came up with a good point. We've gotten used to security reviews um, and certainly the consultancy of, of hiring a, a security cons uh, company to come in and consult and, and do in-depth security review. Um, it's you know, still done ad hoc. Uh, to my uh, my experience so far, and they get paid considerable amount of money, and it's usually an incredibly painful interview process to to actually do a security review, and then um, and then to prioritize um, the the worst the worst fixes um, that are the most egregious. But um, that being said, um, it's definitely happening, and uh, my experience, uh, the companies I've been at. We'd never do an architectural review much in the same way, um, but it would be really awesome if we did. Um, and generally, the architecture is just assumed to be too difficult to review or the people responsible for it don't like being second-guessed <laughs> so that they would never um, uh, agree to having an outside vendor or consultancy review their choices and make recommendations and changes. But um, that being said, I, I think that would be following the same sort of process um, to hire an outside architectural uh, um, review company, much in the same vein as a security company and do interviews and, and make recommendations would be an awesome idea. Uh, you know, figuring out how to build momentum on doing that and, and building that as a consultancy, I think, uh, you know, if you could, find a few companies that would be willing to do that as, as test cases. I, I, I would love to hear how that would work. So I, I think the, the path has been laid by the security uh, consult, consultancies that have popped up and they're very well paid. I think that that's also um, starting to get legs because if you look at it from the odd angle of insurance providers, Mm -hmm. Insurance companies are starting to write policies against cybersecurity risk. And those audits that they're making companies go through have to touch the architectural side just as much as the cybersecurity. 
And it's starting to gain momentum because the quantifier and qualifier from the insurance company's point of view is how architecturally sound is your product? Where are the risks? And we're going to write the policy based on that risk factor for the monetization of that policy. So they're going through that and it's starting. I think you'll see more of it. Like by 2025, it's going to almost have to be part of the VC landscape of do you currently carry an architectural you know, um, insurance policy for new software that's being produced and for the established vendors, I think there's going to be penalties that are going to be affixed by government and regulators if those are breached, like they haven't gone through the audit because mm. there's too much of this and it's starting to gain so much attention at higher levels that people are looking for not only a way to regulate, but a way to protect themselves. Liability cases are starting to come to bear, et cetera, et cetera. But I do want to bring up one little point. Think about the days before OAuth. (laughs) And it's not what's old is new, but rather life was a lot simpler without OAuth and the spreading of these kinds of difficulties across established vendors and those that are dependent upon those small bytes of code that come from other people. That sourcing, yes, errors and omissions for software. That's mm-hmm. exactly it. It's, um, it's you, been around it's for a long time. The world. Yeah. But before OAuth, we had a lot less of this. And the fact that we're so reliant and have be, and it's become so commonplace to you, you know, in the days of OAuth one, and then OAuth two, to just say, oh, look, we don't have to worry about this anymore. I think there's going to be a return to we do have to worry about this. Yeah, the chains may be the solution, but the getting to that point is going to be a long road. Before OAuth, though, also we had many different siloed. Uh, sure. Yeah, so it, it was bad the other way too. It's just um, everyone jumped in with you know both feet and their chickens. So yeah, Listen, somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle needs to happen, and it needs to happen faster. You know, we did it with proxies. We did it with you know proxy servers. We did it with DNS. We did it with so many other things. There's no reason that we couldn't figure this out in a more simplified way than the quagmire that it would create. The buy-in, I think, will come not only from the uh, entrenched enterprise providers who are losing shares because of issues like this, but also because the idea of vendor lock-in is now uh, moving to something a little bit more sophisticated, I, I think is the right word at an infrastructure level, at an application level, at an OS level, the world is not going to continue to be dependent on Microsoft for OS. We know that from Linux. Active Directory isn't the solution here? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Uh. (laughs) Thank you for putting the words in my mouth. Yeah. Although we still see it as very, it's right, the need for a centralized directory is... Well, it's federated. It's built on the concept of federation from the start. Right. And so thus, right. even though it obviously has some flaws, and I actually uh, started off implementing 
first version of Active Directory um, and Exchange built off of that. Um, so I have some history. <laughs> I helped uh, buy my first house, actually. It was so lucrative. So, um, but uh, yeah, but the, the idea of federation, I think is, um, I, I think possibly is what we're teasing at is uh, gotten lost or maybe even become a dirty word where it was, you know, why, why not have a lake of auth instead of a whole bunch of um, uh, silos that can communicate with each other and we could shut off um, or tune tune up and down. It's depending on what their use case is. It, much like secrets management, I mean it, um, <laughs> it. It should be part of our overall secrets management. I mean, having them as two separate groups doesn't make sense. Um, and the more and more we get to um, serverless type apps, um, the more and more that uh, the certs become uh, a uh, the just as important, if, if not more, and, and they need to be integrated in the same, uh, not the same system, but the, the same approach. I, when you have ephemeral, when you have ephemeral consumers of trusted data, you have a very difficult problem. Rich, you have your hand up. I, I would yeah, jump just in with a my comment. Quick, a quick point, because I, I wanted to follow up on something Joanne brought up and that is the notion that the insurance industry and cyber insurance has the possibility in conjunction with regulation to kind of drive towards um vendor transition assurance assurance not insurance um the notion that if you are in the business of uh, authentication, like um, you know, an SSO like an, like Okta, and uh, to get insurance from the majors, you're going to have to prove that um, you are not subject to um, you know incredible and uh, very expensive suits uh, for non-compliance. And that means that what you have is the major providers of SSO and, and authentication actually in concert with the big insurers coming to a, to a conclusion oh, that in order to afford to be in this business, you have to offer up some provable or at least um, a reasonable assurance that you've provided for something like transition. When when a company, when a an enterprise, when a customer needs or must um, move off of Okta and go on to I don't care, Ping or Big ID or somebody else. What this means essentially is that the practical sense of what you guys are talking about is that if the insurance company is asking for verifiable proof, that means a security scan for CISA um, listed or published um, vulnerabilities. And you need yeah. to be able to prove or yeah. show essentially that you use some approved security scanning vendor like Aqua or somebody that uh, you're clean. Yeah, um, exactly. And so, we it's what, New business model. It's what insurance 
it's what insurers do now uh, in order to be in the reassurance reinsurance business and sell it off to others, but also, um, you know, that's how they're setting premiums in most other industries. So, yeah, it, it says it's a combination of insurance and government regulation that actually brings some of the right pressures to bear on vendors. Yeah, it, it, like this is just mentioned, it, it now if that becomes the case and that starts spinning that way, that then Aqua will be, and some of the other vendors have become the, the big target to break in because they're touching everything and then they'll be the new vulnerability. <laughs> so, well, you know, yeah. the banks have done it. Uh, telcos, telcos have done it. Sim similar issues uh, with regard to insurance. Um, a lot of uh, manufacturing industries have done this before. And yeah. the insurance industries themselves have figured out how to establish a some sort of a, a either a trusted third party to to handle the handle the the data requirements amongst them, or um, you know establish a, aspiring investigatory or compliance organizations. Not that not that I want to create another compliance industry like what we have today, but does that drive towards more lock-in or less lock-in though? Because it, it feels like if if well, you are it might be lock into a community. Okay. Well I'm thinking about PCI DSS, right? Yeah. It, and financial services, banking, yeah. um, you know, that's a standard checkbox required to get insured uh, for a company that has credit cards, right? Mm -hmm. um, the thing is, is that that's tied to uh, a lot of data points around lawsuits that have happened. So it's, 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 you've got data to put into those actuarial algorithms that the insurance companies use. With, with this, with lock-in, there, there isn't all the precedent and all the, the cases that have occurred. So they no, were you're, you're absolutely right. And, and it would have to be, it, it's not something that can be turned on overnight. There's just, there, there's no way you could Tyler, but I'm, I'm basically of the opinion that those are the, those are the motive forces to make the, some of the right things happen at least. I would agree with you. I mean, it's definitely not going to happen overnight, but there's enough, there are enough issues that are driving it forward. And I think, you know, if I look at it from a vendor's point of view, to set up something like PCI compliance, which I did with your secure, it cost us a quarter of a million dollars just to get it certified. Mm -hmm. That's not small, a small amount of money. And the ongoing upkeep of that PCI certification is probably a half of that on an annual basis. So it will be expensive, but it where it goes to the vendor lock-in is if you if you prove it and you have that capability, you're I don't want to say automatically trusted as a vendor, but it does help towards the lock-in and ramp up and all of those kinds of things. Where it becomes detracting is no matter how good those that PCI certification, just as an example, is 
there's always going to be somebody who figures out how to do it better. Um, in, in fact, it actually got us off the hook by becoming a bank and going through that very long legal process. And once you're certified as a bank for money transfer or credit cards or anything like that, you actually can then um, delay some of the cost or spread it out over a longer period of time for that one single certification because you have to have 10, 10 more that are stronger. It's going to be the same situation with what Rich and I are discussing from the insurance perspective, but overall it's better because if it's implemented properly and we did it on a sort of as a service basis, then you could pick that up and actually take it to another vendor. We, we had a license specifically for that. And I think that's where the area where vendor lock-in is going to move up to. So you're not, you're not locked in, you're locked into the object, not the company owning it because it's transferable. And yeah, I your, think where we'll see it your first- security license per se. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And where we'll see it happen first is probably in the cyber physical, you know, the insurer, the insurance companies that uh, cover, for example, medical devices that are- and, Yes. And dealing with, uh, with those types of things. Um, that I believe is actually likely to be the first, the first onslaught of this kind of an approach, simply because to Tyler's point, there is enough legal precedent. There have been cases and awards of damages and, and the like. There's a, there's a, uh, there's a reasonable, well, there is a body of precedent. Let's put it that way. 100% agree. And it's actually, in a way, almost more valuable than patents are. Because, oh, you know, if you talk to VCs these days, they'll tell you, well, in some cases, having the patent is not, not the issue anymore because the patent can always be reworked and, and, and written and filed. So we don't care about your patents. We care about other things more than that. In this mm -hmm. case, if you put it at that level, you can license as being patent, valuable. Yeah. Pardon? You can license a patent. You can't license your security, you know, like your PCI. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not, it's not transferable. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you make something that is, think about the value of that. Yeah. 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 I just think that's going to be super difficult. I mean, you look at folks selling um, ransomware insurance, um, you know, speaking to folks that are selling that, they're like, I, I asked, I asked the question. So what kind of, what kind of um, uh, uh, setup do you have for evaluating the risk of a ransomware attack with a, with a customer? And he's like, well, we have some kind of general checks box, but it's basically just a questionnaire for self-attestation. And pretty much everybody gets charged the same price based on the size of the company. And because they don't have any good any good data to drive their algorithms, I think with lock-in, it's even more difficult. Yeah, and and in the case of, that you just mentioned, those numbers will change over time as there's, you know, as, the, as there are um, 
more incidents and more um, there's more knowledge about what works and what doesn't. Yeah, I think what's actually going to happen is what happened with the pandemic and work at home, where coronavirus forced people to figure out how to let their employees work from their own house. I think what will happen is at some point in the next 10 years, we're going to see a major nation state hack of Amazon, Azure, Okta, whoever, probably multiple of the aboves that is, is going to really wake people up. I think that's going to be the driver is not, not regulation. That's going to be a, you know, Hey, none of my employees can log into any of their systems. Uh, I'm not looking forward to that one, but yeah, I think you might be right. We are at the top of the hour. So I'm, I'm going to, going to wrap us up um, because I'm still scratching my head on exactly how we got from a lock-in conversation to an insurance conversation. So I, I need to, I need to think about that one offline and, and figure it out. Um, I will make a note. Um, there's it was a topic that, that I didn't, a thread I didn't pick up on that I, I pushed into the Tuesday agendas, which is this K does Kubernetes escape lock-in or can it escape lock-in if yes or no, explore that. So that's, that's the more technical hey, hey, Rob, session. To answer anyway, your so. question, how we got from lock-in to insurance is, is risk. Yeah. Risk. <sighs> of course. 100%. And that is a nice synopsis. Thank you. We, we like folks, to talk about risk and we, we like to talk about risk in this group is complexity. We boil down to risk and uh, lock in. We just boil down to risk. So <laughs> I got to go guys. Thanks. Yeah, I got to go too. Thanks for the Bye, conversation. Have a good one. Great discussion. I always appreciate it. Yeah. Wow, a great uh, conversation. Tyler really summed it up uh, very nicely with a bow. Uh, Lock-in is risk. And uh, that, I think, really captures the sentiment of the discussion. We're going to keep discussing about this. We, we pushed some topics here into the future. Uh, they are on our Cloud.2030 schedule. And you can join in those conversations. I would love to hear your voice and opinion. We had 10 people in this call. Um, and there's room for more. So please join us at the2030.cloud, and I will see you there. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.